Hills. Hey, good morning. Honored, honored, honored to be with you this morning. Let me start by sharing an article with you that was published on June 15th, 2021, written by Harvard University professor and psychologist David Rosmerin. And the article was published in the Scientific American, and the title of the article is Psychiatry Needs to Get Right with God. Can I get an amen just at the title alone? Hallelujah. In the article, Rosmarin said that in 2020, mental health dropped to its lowest point in recorded history. He said that mental illness prevalence rates rose by 50%, astonishing. Substance abuse soared and teens in 2020 were twice as likely to consider suicide than they were in 2018. Lots of you felt that and experienced that and know people that felt and experienced that. But here's what's interesting about this particular article, and this is the point I wanted to make and the reason I shared it with you this morning. There was a group that actually experienced improvement in their mental health in 2020. And that group was the group of people that regularly attended religious services each week, either in person or online. And in that group, as of 2021, when this study was published, 46% reported excellent mental health, which was an increase from the year prior in 2020. Of that group, 42% reported excellent mental health. That's a 10% increase. What's the difference that makes the difference there? The church and the Lord Jesus Christ. Over the last 40 years, the mental health field has made significant advancements. Unfortunately, Hills Church, my field still fails to acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of all health, mental and otherwise. I wanna talk to you about that a little bit this morning. Like Rick said, my name's Trent, Dr. T, to my students and colleagues, Mr. T, to people in the community. I've always kinda wanted to be on the A-team. So I like Mr. T. Um, I'm all the things Rick said, and I am the teaching pastor and an elder at Trace Church. Rick didn't mention that, which is a new church plant. It's six years old. It's located in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And Hills Church, you were one of the sponsoring planting churches that helped plant my home church in Colorado Springs, Trace Church. We had 1,800 people attend our Easter services. Thank you for your generosity. We baptized over 100 individuals last year, and we've outpaced that this year already. God's up to something, and you guys have had a lot to do with that. Um, I get to do a lot of cool stuff in life that I don't deserve to do. We serve a really, really faithful God who really, really does love us despite our brokenness and shortcoming. I'm a professor, happy married father of three, published author, business owner, and I get to speak at churches that have a national influence like this But the guy you see sitting before you today is not the man I've always been. So I'm gonna dig deep real fast. In the spring of 2002, I escaped from a mental hospital on the outskirts of New Orleans, Louisiana. What that means, Hills Church, is that the guy speaking to you today was at one moment in time in his life an escaped mental patient. That is a little bit funny. You can chuckle at that. That's not the type of thing we want on our resume if we're all being honest, all right? Um, I've been in treatment for two and a half years of my life total, primarily for substance abuse, personality disorders, and mental health struggles. 
If you can think of it, I've probably struggled with it or have been treated for it. When I was living homeless in New Orleans, Louisiana, I experienced everything you can imagine uh, uh, an adolescent Midwestern homeless person might experience uh, on the streets of New Orleans and some things you probably can't imagine. How in the world do people come to struggle with the type of mental health issues that I battled in my life? And how does a guy go from a homeless, messed up, junkie addict to a guy that's transformed with some alphabet soup behind his name that gets to do what I'm gonna get to do this morning and teach you a little bit about that by the grace and mercy of God the Father demonstrated to me through Christ the Son and by the love of wonderful people like you guys, Hills Church. So my field breaks down the things that influence mental health into four different domains. The first domain I wanna talk to you about is biology and mental health. And when researchers are interested in studying the biological influence on mental health, they often study twins, in particular identical twins, who are adopted at birth into two separate families and raised apart. We won't settle the nature versus nurture debate today, and Rick's already mentioned that in, in previous lessons in this series already, but we can draw some conclusions. Um, and you guys are aware that your genetic predisposition does have an influence in your life. Some of you can run faster and jump higher than me because of your genetic predisposition to run fast and jump high. And I've been waiting to do this illustration. It's a joke that I wrote into my lesson. Um, some of the men in our audience today are genetically predisposed to have what I call LTH, which is long-term hair, like Pastor Rick. He, doesn't he have great hair? Others of you are genetically predisposed to have what I call STH, short-term hair, which is what's happening to me. Um, <clears throat> here's, the, here's the reality. Uh, there are three things I wanna mention. The first is that there is a group of people based on the research in my field that process stress hormones like cortisol a little bit differently. So two interesting things about this population, they, they feel anxiety a little bit more sensitively than those who are not predisposed to be as sensitive to stress hormones. So some anxiousness is influenced by that. The second thing is that those people also really kind of struggle with attentiveness in higher stress environments. So there's a little bit of a genetic component to that. An, an interesting study done in 1981 tried to discern the degree to which a person's potential for substance abuse uh, struggles related to alcohol were correlated with biological parents versus adoptive parents. Is it nature or is it nurture? What these researchers in 1981 found is that adoptees are three times more likely to struggle with alcohol abuse problems if their biological parents struggled with those problems than they are if their adoptive parent struggled with those problems. And some research in my field today suggests that up to 50% of a person's risk for developing a struggle with opioid addiction is genetic because those individuals process and metabolize opioids differently than others. The next domain I wanna talk about, and I'm going quickly just for the sake of time, is cognition and mental health. Human beings are designed by God to think in patterned ways. So 
So one of the things a mental health professional is trying to do with the clients that he or she serves is clarify the, the patterns of thought that may be a dis disadvantage to a client that I'm working with. And so here's a really important concept when we're talking about cognition and mental health. The human mind is designed to make the world in which you live, you and I live, as understandable, familiar, and survivable as possible. That's the function of those patterns of thought. One illustration I wanna give you today is called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. The Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. This is Googleable and it's a fun little research study if you have some spare time on your hands. So the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon explains how we tend to notice things more frequently when they are new, profound, and especially when they're painful. And you've all experienced this, believe it or not. Let me tell you, let me give an example to prove it. Let's say you decide you wanna buy a, a new vehicle. So you go to the car lot and you, you see a white truck that just inspires your heart. And so you decide you're gonna purchase it, you sign on the dotted line, you get your keys, you hop in the new truck and you drive off the lot. And startlingly, when you drive off the lot, everywhere you look, what do you see? Oh, that same exact white truck. And if you bought a new pair of shoes or anything like that, you've noticed the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Well, Hills Church, it's not that all of a sudden that particular day at that same time, everybody in the Metroplex decided they were gonna go buy that same white truck. That's your pattern of thought that God integrated into your design to make your world as familiar and survivable and understandable as possible. Okay, and usually that's kind of neutral and it can even be an advantage, but sometimes it's a disadvantage. Let me explain how using another illustration. Let's say you're 15 years old. You finally muster up enough courage to ask your love interest at school to be your boyfriend or girlfriend. And you slip a note and that person circles yes and it's official. It's bliss, you're in love, the love is reciprocated and the stars have aligned. But two weeks later, that same love interest slips you a note back that says, I'm just not that into you anymore. I wanna break up. Somebody said, oh, right. We all can relate to that, it hurts. And for the first time you experience the pain of deep rejection. Now the pain of that deep rejection is like buying the new truck. All of a sudden your brain learns what profound rejection feels like and to make your world more understandable and more familiar and survivable, what does your brain start to notice with greater frequency. Feeling rejected, whether or not you're actually being rejected at a higher frequency. And if that happens to a person and there's not enough support to help them work through it, that person can come to believe they are worthless and have no value and are disliked, not because they are rejected, because of those things more frequently, but because they feel it due to their brain trying to organize their world in an understandable, familiar, or survivable way. Over time, 
our patterns of thought can significantly influence our emotional state and our overall mental health. The third domain I want to mention to you this morning is the behavioral domain. Behavior significantly influences mental health. And just like human beings are, pattern, are programmed to think in patterned ways, human beings are also designed by God to behave in patterned ways. Behavior is understood by mental health professionals using the acronym ABC, which they have to make it simple like that for guys like me who would get easily confused with more complex concepts. ABC means antecedent, behavior, and consequence. So in this sequence, antecedent is the stimulus. Behavior is the response. And consequence is the outcome. And when we're, when we're working with trying to change behavior, often mental health professionals are really, really interested in antecedent causes or the stimulus that induces the behavior. And the reason why is we're trying to gauge what could be influencing a person's behavioral response. And human beings behave primarily because of two things. So behaviorally speaking, uh, humans are designed by God to instinctively seek relief from pain and to instinctively seek to repeat what feels good. My family and I moved to Colorado Springs three years ago and a big part of our culture is like summiting a 14,000 foot mountain. We're from Louisiana, which is below sea level. So we can't even breathe in our own home. I can barely make it up my stairs. We're like, what in the world are these people doing? Climbing stuff that's that arduous and, and difficult. Well, your brain has embedded within its structure a reward system. And when a person goes through the painstaking agony of climbing a 14,000 foot mountain in Colorado, when she reaches the summit, her brain's reward center releases a reinforcing reward chemical that benefits her for making the trip. And often it's our brain's reward circuitry that influences our ongoing sort of day-to-day -day behavior. In lots of contexts, that's really, really good. But one of the things mental health professionals are interested in is the way, pain, is the way behavior is motivated by pain. So let's break pain into two categories for the purposes of our discussion today, physical pain and emotional pain. Let's talk physical pain for just a second. If you touch a hot stove, and some of you are immediately having a trauma response to that because you've touched a hot stove before. And what happens when you touch a hot stove, Hills Church? You pull your hand back, or at least I hope that you pulled your hand back. It's an instinct, it's a reflex, it's a pain relief seeking compulsion. You don't have to think to yourself of the way molecular energy is transmitted through the phospholipid bilayer of your skin into the nerve endings of your head and all that translates a signal into your brain which causes you to remove your hand. You just remove your hand. You're designed to compulsively seek relief from pain. But how, and, and we understand that in, instinctively. Right? But how do you relieve emotional pain? And if I were to ask an audience like this, and I have often, I get responses that sound like, well, Dr. T, you know, you, you pray about the pain you've endured in life. Or, or Dr. T, you read the word of God 
and you study it diligently to relieve the pain you experienced in life, or you talk to a trusted friend or even a pastor or a counselor, you got me, you're right. And all of that stuff works. But what happens if you're hurt deeply in life at five years old or seven years old or 12 years old? At that point in each of our lives, none of us have developed the skill set to be able to pray or study or talk our way into a pain-relieving situation. Importantly, Hills Church, when you are hurt in life, your brain actually becomes hypersensitized to anything that provides emotional pain relief. So the answer to that question is, you don't know how to relieve emotional pain in life until your brain learns. And all this was discovered, I wanna tell you a little background on this, a really important point. All this was discovered by two weight loss physicians who were overseeing the San Diego Department of Preventive Medicine's weight loss clinic in the 1980s. And what they noticed is that the people who were most likely to drop out of their program when they were surveying their data were also the people who were experiencing the best results from their treatment, which is very paradoxical. Why is it they wondered that the people who were getting the best results were the most likely to drop out of our treatment program? So these two physicians decided that they were gonna conduct in-depth clinical interviews with 200 people who dropped out of their weight loss program despite experiencing some of the uh, best results with their treatment process. And they found that almost every single person they interviewed had been through multiple experiences of childhood trauma. Let me paint this picture for you really quick. Imagine you're eight years old and both of your parents work. And at school one day, for whatever reason, you get picked out of the crowd and you are brutally bullied. You're watching the clock tick by, desperate to get on the bus and get home and shut the front door behind you. Finally, the end of day, school bell rings, you get on the bus, you get home, you shut the front door, and you feel like I often felt when I finished a school day, you're hungry. So you walk into your cupboard and you're alone, both your parents work and you know it'll be an hour or two before they get there. And so you're looking for a snack and you find Dr. T's favorite indulgence, a honey bun. (laughs) Praise be to God. And you get it out and you unwrap it and you eat the honey bun. And when you eat it, you experience the expected primary benefit of satiation of your hunger. But as your body metabolizes the sugar from the honey bun, your brain releases chemicals like serotonin and dopamine in really microscopic amounts, which have an unexpected, much more powerful secondary benefit. And your emotional pain is numbed just a little. And that activates your brain's reinforcing reward center And instead of eating one honey bun, you eat the whole box. Not because you're that hungry, but because you're that hurt. So the next day you show up to school and those same kids who are mean and bullying you start bullying you and being rude 
all over again. And in that moment, you feel the expected emotional pain that you felt the day before, but you also feel something unexpected. You feel the pang of hunger. You notice a craving in your mind and the taste of something on your tongue. What is it that you can taste? It's a honey bun. Because the day prior, your brain has learned honey buns ease emotional pain. What the San Diego Department of Preventative Medicine physicians found is that the people they surveyed were medicating emotional pain with food. And as they lost weight, their emotions surfaced and they dropped out of the program. They were astonished. They stopped telling people they had an eating problem or a diet problem, or a metabolism problem, and they started telling their patients that they had a pain problem. And almost overnight, they improved people's body weight without medical intervention. So these doctors developed a 10-question survey to gauge the degree of adverse childhood experiences a person has endured in life. And I wanna read you these 10 questions. So these can be triggering, And I've adjusted the words a little bit in some of the questions to make them a a little bit less intrusive uh, for the purposes of our time together today. So here are those 10 questions. The first is, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at, insult, put you down or humiliate you, often or very often act in a way that made you afraid you might be physically hurt? Did a parent or other adult in the household often often, often or very often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you or often or very often hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Did an adult or person at least five years older ever touch you in an inappropriate way or have you touched them in an inappropriate way or attempt to assault you in an inappropriate way? Four, did you often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special, that your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other or support each other? Did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one to protect you, or often or very often feel like your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or to the doctor if you needed it? Six, were your parents ever separated or divorced? Seven, was your mother or stepmother often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her, sometimes or often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, or ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes or threatened with a gun or knife? Did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or who used street drugs? Was a household member depressed, mentally ill, or did a household member ever attempt suicide? Last question, number 10. Did a household member ever go to prison? A couple of statistics related to the ACE study. First, if you have four or more ACEs, you're 460% more likely to experience clinical depression. 460%. If you have four or more ACEs, you are 1,200% more likely to contemplate or attempt suicide. A male with six or more ACEs, 4,600% more likely to use intravenous drugs. Six or more ACEs reduces life expectancy by 20 years. Why? Why is it that early childhood trauma makes a person at such higher risk for mental health struggles? 
because of the pain relief seeking compulsion embedded into our design that compels us to seek relief from pain before we're able to find a healthy way of resolving it. You could substitute a honey bun for almost anything in the example that I gave earlier, sexual acting out, substances, anything. And you have the recipe for behavioral disorder. From the ACEs study, researchers broke the types of trauma a person can endure in life into two different categories, strain trauma and shock trauma. When I read those 10 questions, some of those questions occurred to you as the types of things you think of when you think of early childhood trauma, like violent crimes or assaults or some other type of tragedy. But based on what we know in the literature, shock trauma by far has much less influence on the central nervous system over time than the second category of trauma, strain trauma. That's the death by a thousand cuts variety. Here's what's a challenge about that to providers of mental health care. For people who have endured strain trauma, their variety of trauma is invisible to them. One example I give about this is two young fish who are swimming in the ocean and an old fish who's swimming towards them and they cross paths. And the old fish says to the two young fish, hey guys, how's the water? And the two young fish look at each other and they look at the old fish and they look at each other and they look at the old fish. And one young fish says to the other young fish, what in the world is water? And the colloquialism is, it's only fish that don't know it's water in which they swim. When it's been that way your entire life, you felt nobody loves you or supports you or your parents are divorced or someone in your family has a mental illness, it feels normal. Your brain makes it feel normal. And when it feels normal, it's invisible to you. So those individuals walk into my office and they're like, Dr. T, I am so messed up and I don't know why and nothing's really happened to me. And usually I'm looking at strain trauma to explain what they're struggling with at that point in time. Dr. T, how can all of this be resolved? Let me talk about the fourth domain that influences mental health, relationships. The answer to every issue that I have just summarized for you is found in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. A teacher of the law approaches Jesus and comes and hears them debating and noticing that Jesus has given them a good answer in verse 28. He says to Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. I've been a Christian for almost 19 years, and for the first 17 years of my Christian faith, I have read these verses through the lens of devotion. My interpretation has always been, give your life entirely in devotion to glorifying God and give everything you had to loving others like Jesus loves them. And Hills Church, I think that's the right interpretation. But about two years ago, I started to look at these verses through the lens of relationships. And here's an important statement. Relational connectedness has more potential to profoundly influence mental health than all other domains combined. 
Now, this idea has been around for over 100 years. There was a physician named Henry Chapin who was treating infants in hospitals in the northeastern part of the United States. The hospitals Chapin worked in were overcrowded, and he noticed that the babies under his care were passing away at much higher rates than at hospitals he was in connection with in other parts of the U.S., What puzzled Dr. Chapin is that the children under his his care in these highly populated uh, pediatric units had adequate food and adequate shelter and adequate hygiene, and they still weren't surviving. He decided one day to improve the caregiver to infant ratio at the hospitals under his leadership, and almost overnight, the fetal demise rates in his hospitals improved. What Chapin realized is that as critical to life as adequate food, shelter, and hygiene is adequate human connection. Chapin published his findings and described what he found uh, in terms of a medical diagnosis he called failure to thrive. And that's a diagnosis that's still used by pediatricians today to describe babies who are inadequately connected to a primary caregiver. What we've thought is that a person's need to connect to others diminished over time. But what we now know is that your need to connect doesn't change over time the symptoms that arise as a result of disconnect and the long-term consequences of that disconnection change a little bit, but ultimately connection is a life or death issue. If I had an hour and a half, I could prove this time and time and time again in the literature in my field. Let me summarize by saying this. At this point in my field, we know that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. At this point in my field, we know that the opposite of conflict between married couples is not agreement. It's connected attunement. There's literature that clearly states the opposite of a low mood is not an elevated mood. It's connection. Hills Church, the core feature of connection is love. And love is the central theme of our faith. Love is the core attribute of God, according to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. The most distinguishable feature of a disciple in John 13, 34, and 35 is how we love one another. Of the eternal constructs of our Christianity, faith, hope, and love, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest is love. When Peter talks about how to cover a multitude of sins in the first epistle he wrote, chapter four and verse eight, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. In Genesis 1.27, God designs mankind in his image, which means we are designed to love God deeply and to love others and be loved by others. Let's go back to Mark 12. Why is it when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, because Jesus knows that the foundation of health, mental and otherwise, is connection with God the Father through Christ the Son and connection to God's 
people to be loved by them and to love them. Why is it that that same group experienced improvement in mental health in the worst time for mental health in the history of, of any nation? Because all of this is true, Hills Church. That's my story. I've been in treatment two and a half years of my life total. You know what they call those people? Impossible. There's just no way anybody that ever worked with me thought I could get well. And because people loved me when I was unlovable and because I encountered the love of God in the midst of the most dark, broken, hopeless place imaginable, my heart was healed my sins were forgiven and my mental health was restored. Yeah, give God glory for that. Hallelujah. I've got to pause. Uh, we're going to wrap up, but I want to talk to three groups before I do. The first group I want to mention is the group of struggling people who are not Christians that attended today. And if that's you, can I just say thank you so much for attending. If somebody invited you to attend today, I'm just honored that you're here. It is really, really difficult to walk into an unfamiliar place and sit in an unfamiliar space and listen to an unfamiliar face. And I know that because I was in your position almost 20 years ago. And to that group specifically, what I wanna say this morning is what, what have you got to lose and surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. What have you got to lose? Let me answer the question for you. Nothing. I mean that. You don't have anything to lose, but what do you have to gain? My life is a testimony to this. Everything. King David wrote Psalm 37, four. You don't need to know who it is. The verse says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll grant you the desires of your heart. Right here, right now in this moment, that verse is coming true for me. I've pursued Christ above all else and God has granted my heart's desires that I didn't even know existed until I surrendered my life to him. If that's you, after I close in prayer, uh, Pastor Taylor is gonna invite you to come forward. Let, let today be that day that you find everything your heart was looking for and everything you didn't even know it was looking for. Second group of people in the audience today I wanna mention are, are the group of struggling people who are Christians. If that's you, this lesson has been hard. Why is that? Because you've been thinking, Dr. T, I love the Lord. I love God's people. And I still struggle with a mental health issue. And that's me too. Not every scar that I endured in the life I lived before Jesus has been completely healed. And I wish I could say, if you just surrender your life to Jesus and love God's people, everything will be butterflies and rainbows for the rest of your life. And you know that's not true. Sometimes we don't get healing in life this side of heaven. Sometimes healing's very delayed and sometimes it happens incrementally, step by step. Here's something that's always encouraged me when I've battled a mental health issue as a Christian. It's Revelation 21.4. And when we get to heaven, the Lord Jesus himself will wipe every single tear from each of the, our eyes and there will be no more death, there will be no more crying and there will be no more pain. All that's old life stuff and life in heaven is brand new. That is hope that only Christians have. And if that's you this morning, I'm hoping that my lesson may encourage you just a little bit to keep going. Third group 
are people who are not currently struggling that are Christians. If that's you, I really appreciate you being here this morning. People who are struggling really, really need you. They need a warm embrace. They need to see your smile as you welcome them into the Hills Church. They just need to interact with your demeanor. There is nuclear power in your connection to people who are struggling. My comment to you would be don't ever forget your influence. You are God's plan A to help heal the hurts that stand between hurting people and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You guys as a church have done that for me. 10 years ago, I sat right back there in the auditorium with my wife, got to hear Pastor Rick teach on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. What a treat to see the best preacher in the nation. I'll deny that to Pastor Rick if, if you mention that outside of this service. <laughs> teach on that. And I thought to myself, man, how encouraged I feel at just being able to fellowship with you guys. Thank you for the love you have for the Lord and the love you have for hurting people like me. Keep loving people like Jesus. You're having an influence that you cannot imagine. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, so thankful for this church. Just wanna pray over three groups right now. The first group are struggling people who are not Christians. God of heaven, may they be compelled to respond this morning and surrender their lives to you. Struggling people who are Christians, God, if they need to respond to be encouraged and to fellowship with other Christians, I just ask that their hearts would be moved to respond this morning. And those people who are not struggling, may they be prayerful and supportive and loving towards those of us who are. We ask all these things in Christ's name.